We have to start with the great evolution debate. <laughs> we had two points of view after last week's class. One was the P.G. Woodhouse response, where from that story where Bertie gets himself in terrible trouble in the school. He's telling off-color jokes to a girls, an assembly of girls in a school. And the director saves the day by standing up and saying, we will now sing the school song to get him to stop. And so that is the Ananda way of saying, please stop what you're doing. Let's just sing the school song. So I had a lot of people who wished we'd started singing the school song last week when we got really into evolution. And there were others who actually enjoyed it. But let's finish it off today. Okay, one way or another. I'm holding in my hand the email from Tandava. And I will do my best to represent my thoughts and yours. And when I, when I fail, so why don't you have the microphone in your hand? and have it turned on. I also have to apologize last week for utterly losing my cool about the microphone. It's on. Just leave it on and hold it close enough to your mouth so you can be heard. Gee, have I said that before? Maybe never. Okay. Maybe so. All right. The whole discussion last week was based on what is still very interesting. When... uh, It was the same professor who posed the question, which came first? This is number six, the tree or the seed? Which came first, the tree or the seed? The tree came first, master answered without hesitation, as the idea of a deed precedes the deed itself. The tree was, in this way, a special creation of God. When he set the process in motion, there's a key phrase, when he set the process in motion, Um, gave the tree seeds that it might produce other trees like itself. God, when he set the process in motion of having trees, gave the tree seeds that it might produce other trees like itself. Everything at first, he added, is an idea, a special creation. Now that is a pretty gigantic statement. Um, Tandava raises the question of, does it all poof? out at the same time, or does, as he proposes, and it's an interesting proposition, Master creates all the individual atoms, I mean, that God creates all the individual atoms, each one dowered with intelligence and individuality, and they begin the process and gradually coalesce. You know, what, what part, what, where is the idea? Does it, does it manifest through a, a traceable physical um, form, or is it not there and then it's there? My answer to that is an eloquent, who knows? No, when Swami, when I asked Swamiji certain questions about Babaji and the astral world and why Jesus didn't have a guru and, I mean, why Jesus' guru was more advanced than him, I said, Swami, there's so much that's so confusing about the story about Jesus. Why did we have to throw in that his guru was John the Baptist and he was more advanced and Swami's response was he was eating he put down his fork and he shrugged his shoulders and then he picked up his fork like this and said some mysteries will have to wait until we get to the astral world i think in terms of this one of that extremely interesting um interesting the way it was reported the samadhi that master had in august of 1948 in which both sides of the conversation with the divine mother were heard where the Divine Mother's voice was heard through Master's body, and then his own voice was heard. And Divine Mother took him all over the cosmos, and Master's voice said, Oh, that's how you do it. I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know how to put things like that into perspective. <clears throat> Except, as we remember from doing the Patanjali class, even after you get samadhi, there's all this other stuff that goes on and on and on. So, Master's response, I just, I have no way of putting it into place. <clears throat> the relevant point um, here, I think, in terms of evolution, and this is what Swami writes in his four chapters in Out of the Labyrinth, which I studied but not exhaustively, um, is simply that there is an observable physical phenomenon, which is that things seem to change. And in, in many cases, things seem to advance. They go from lower forms to higher forms, or creatures seem to evolve and learn things 
I mean, individual creatures learn things. They start new habits. They, you can, you can uh, watch these things take place, and biologists and so on do. What Swami puts into it is that there has to be, or there is, an individual intelligence which is participating in that process. That the leopard or the monkey that is gradually becoming something else is having experiences, is integrating those experiences, and is making responses. In other words, it doesn't just happen like, you know, one, uh, one thing rubs up against each other. There's a, a, an intelligence participating. And then he just proposes the simple thought that where does that intelligence come from? That's a lot of what I was saying last week when I was saying that consciousness evolves. And as consciousness evolves, then you can express more. Even you could see it on the human level and one could infer from that, if that's the right word, that it also happens on the animal level, that we ourselves learn to use our bodies in different ways. And we have experiences that cause us to change. We've had bad posture, we get pains in our back, so we stand up straighter. We've been walking in an awkward way and it begins to cause the sciatica, so we learn to walk in a better way and we teach our children to walk that way. And just there's just all these different, you see in the more, more um, traditional cultures, they have much better posture than we do because they have to carry things on their heads and they have to learn. In other words, they learn to use their bodies in different ways. And the bodies grow strong in certain ways, I'm sure, because of that. Why would that not be true on an animal level? It would just be, there would just be less of it and it would be less conscious, but it would be a natural response. And then the smarter ones survive and then they make more of themselves and they, you know, they train their, uh, their offspring uh, we, we used to notice at Ananda Village that on, at the start, now there are so many deer all over the land, it's a little hard to discern, but we used to notice at the start of deer season, when hunting was allowed, there were always more deer on our land than there were. They seemed to know. A crow can tell the difference between a man coming out with a rake in his hand and coming out with a gun in his hand. You know, the crows will scatter if the man comes out with a gun. This is what I've been told. If the man comes out with a rake, the, the crows will stay around. They can tell the difference, and they must teach their offspring things like this. And then, and then you see physical changes from that. But there's this, what Swami was asserting is there's an interplay between consciousness and physical manifestation. It's not that physical manifestation is either random or... Un, uh, just, just physical, that there's an, an interplay that he's working with. Now, Tandava raises the question, um, you know, just like, do, did God make a finished tree? Or did he make the building blocks which were, which were the already pre-programmed to go into the tree? I don't know. The way it, it sounds to me when he says that, because he answers without hesitating that the tree came first, what was the mechanism for God's creation I don't know. Swami has an interesting comment somewhere about, is it in Genesis where that, that God talks about creating? And he uses, he, I believe somewhere in that, and I, I, have, I don't have it in front of me, he uses the word we. I mean, when the scripture is written. Is that what, is that what it said? There's an interesting... Uh, passage or it, I think he mentions it repeatedly in Revelations of Christ Master talks about how God uses used uses higher beings yes, exactly. to help him in manifesting right. all and of this. And that's, I mean, a ton of raises that question. Would God just create the tree or would he go through, would he use instruments, you know, as Master doesn't explain, but in other places there is that concept, and that Tandava raises that question. And masters can manifest universes. So is the idea, we talk about the idea of the tree, is that idea in the, in the, in the mind of one particular great sage whose dream we're all living? You know, these are just, Divine Mother's going to have to take us around the universe and show us these the answer to these questions, um, the, the essential point, I mean, the real debate is whether there's any conscious intelligence 
behind what you observe as the physical development over long periods of time of species and the physical mutation, or whether physical, whether or not life comes from, is the result of the physical world or whether the physical world is the result of consciousness. What Swami really emphasizes is everything that scientists say about physical evolution can stand all by, you know, stand just as it is, and then you can place the whole thing in the context of a greater cosmic consciousness that's, that's carrying out another drama. There's nothing inherent in any of those physical observations to preclude it happening in a bigger picture. And, and if you don't want to, you don't have to see in those physical manifestations the presence of an overarching intelligence but to some people it looks self-evident. And it's, 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 for some people it's a much more satisfying explanation and for others they're just, they don't want it. So they'll just find other reasons. I recall how Master said, um, uh, talking about the passage out of this physical body into the astral world and when the process of death happens and the brain begins to die, that those who believe that consciousness is the result of the brain, that the, the brain, rather than being the instrument of consciousness, is the source of consciousness, when they begin to feel their brains die, the way I heard Master put it was, they feel obligated to go unconscious. It's like they, they, have no, they don't have the imagination to think that they can remain aware when they feel their brains dying, so they go into a, a more or less an unconscious sleep state. And Master said, such people often never wake up in the astral world. As he put it, it's kind of a gray dream to them. And then they wake up when they're in another baby's body. So they sleep in the astral world, so to speak, and then they wake up when they have another brain to think through. The devotee or the person who has meditated or just any person of more refined awareness who lives beyond their physical body, they can feel the physical body die And they can observe, or at least be conscious on some level of the fact that my senses are not working anymore. But nonetheless, they're still conscious because they have the faith, the experience, the meditation experience, or just the good karma to suddenly recognize that consciousness is independent of the body. I mean, these are relevant... um, This is relevant evidence when when you're talking about physical evolution that it just can't happen unless there is an individual consciousness that is motivating it. But just as we can even, you know, consciously develop our bodies, you know, you can go to the gym, you can re-sculpt yourself, you can teach yourself to be a dancer, you can teach yourself to be a violinist, you can teach yourself to endure hot and cold. Um, there's a, I mean, the, the Tibetan yogis can sit in the snow, and there's a woman I read about who is a, uh, an open water swimmer, and she particularly swims in cold water. You know, she's just completely trained herself to have a completely different relationship to being in cold water than the average person has, among other things that she says it's part of her training to eat lots of ice cream because (laughs) she becomes rather portly because that helps her. (laughs) uh, Pardon me? I'll just completely digress and tell you a very funny story out of her about And used to cold, that's what you said, eating ice cream because it helps her get used to cold. She somehow swam from the edge of Alaska to where, where Russia is. Is it the Bering Strait? Is that the right word? She swam across that. And it was very difficult to arrange because uh, I guess it was when the Soviets were more really controlling that. And so for her to, as an American to be able to swim across and you know, with, come, arrive without a passport in <laughs> Russia was very complicated. And she finally worked the whole thing out. And somehow or another she got enough publicity that they were going to do it for her. And they asked her what she would like to have when she arrived. So she made a request that she thought, you know, just it would, hurt, it would be fun if she had what she called a babushka, which she, it was a little scarf she would put on, that she would come and she would arrive and they would give her this, because that was her picture of what a Russian would look like. They seemed very um, puzzled by that request, but she kept insisting, and so they said, fine. So when she comes out of the water, an elderly Russian woman greets her because what she had actually asked for was a grandmother. (laughs) She's lovingly greeted by an elderly Russian woman who was her babushka, I guess is the right... Yeah, her grandmother. 
<laughs> anyway, it just, you know, just the... And she was, of course, delighted. There's all these pictures in her book of herself and her babushka right there. <laughs> she succeeded. But, you know, she trained herself to do that. And I suppose if she had children, she could train all of them to do it. So, you know, they could gradually become a, a race of chubby cold water swimmers. I mean, you could see it. You could have a whole family of chubby cold water swimmers. And so a tiger, a leopard, you know, all those things, the same things could happen. But there is, as Swami says, there's a piece of intelligence involved there. Yes. This is just a silly thing, but I uh, did know some uh, long-distance cold <clears throat> water swimmers, and they bulk up because they lose all of that. Yeah. So they they aren't always what in a right in a single swim. Right. But you know, you read about that, or you read about mountain climbers, and you realize you're dealing with a different kind of breed. And they do train themselves in a completely different way. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about this, so I'm explaining it now. But what's, you know, what you can see on a more refined level would just go down. And you have the smartest monkey who figures out what the, you know, what the best food is to have. Hmm. And you would keep doing it. And you would, and you, and you train your babies. And you know exactly where it comes from. I mean, I'm reading this book that uh, Ramani lent me, which is about, it's written by one of those which you can only call those lunatic chefs, you know, a, a person, a, a food monk kind of person. And just those very extreme, interested, and it was, it's an interesting book. I mean, it's, uh, somebody called it intellectual tourism. I kind of like to touch into people's uh, funny worlds. So this man, faux gras, the, the fatty liver of a, of a goose, whatever that stuff is, where normally it's manufactured by force-feeding the geese to make them really fat. Well, this man goes over to some place in Spain where the best of this stuff is made, not by force-feeding the geese. And then you end up with this whole story about how much this man loves his geese. Now, from the vegetarian point of view, he's raising them to be slaughtered, but let's, he doesn't, this doesn't seem to contradict in his mind. And he ex- takes this man on this whole tour of the happy world in which his geese live in which he points out that when geese are happy and unthreatened and feel very secure, they eat more. And when they're allowed to forage around and they have many, many good things to eat, then they'll eat many of those good things. And he just can just raise them to make this delicious you know, liver stuff after they're dead just by taking really, really good care of them. But you can imagine that their geese hatch and that little goose goes around and you know, the mother goose shows the baby goose, these are good, these are good, these are good. And, it, I mean, there's been a human intervention here. But still, if it's delicious and safe, they would just keep doing it. And then being fed differently, you could see how the body would mutate. And then, because the body has mutated, then the possibilities for that animal would also be there. Now, all of that can just be either, you can just act like it happens by chance, or you can stand back as I was saying last week, when we were combining physical and spiritual evolution, that there's a movement toward ever greater awareness. I mean, a lot of, I think Swami, it might be in the, out of the labyrinth where Swami talks about that when a monkey has, has lots of different food to choose from, he'll still take a bite of this and a bite of this and a bite of this. You know, he gets bored. <laughs> He's not eating just to eat. He's eating to entertain himself, similar, if you will, to us, Right? And it's not, it's not a survival thing. There's also an element of pleasure, which requires an element of thought. You know, I don't know whether the clam, just opening its mouth to whatever comes by, rejects some of what comes by. <laughs> you know, it just waits for the tastier morsels. You know, and can tell, and then you know, nudges his buddy and just watch for the ones with the little, you know, sort of flappy things on. <laughs> Those are the good ones. You just don't know. But why not? Uh, yes? Can you hand the... Mm-hmm. A word is a word is a word is sticking with me, and it does an evolutionist believe in meaninglessness of life? Well, if you're just thinking, Swami was using that word. Well, the word meaningless would come from the idea that things just you know um, physical things just go bump in the night, and various random things happen, and there's no direction to it at all. 
here. Tandava has read more, so he'll explain it. So one of the things I wanted to clarify about that is, and which I think is sort of the basis of the chapters in Swami's book, is evolution says that there are changes in gene pools over time. There's mutation, there's adaptation, um, and things evolve into new species that way. It doesn't make claims about souls. It doesn't make claims about God. Um, and the problem is people layer onto it, oh, if it's just a series of changes from the monkeys to us, then what are we but monkeys? Therefore, life is meaningless, etc. But that's just interpretation. Tom, uh, Swami takes the same core of evolution, you know, species change over time, period, and says, hey, you can have that and just face the other direction and get to uh, a more spiritual viewpoint. Yeah. And have both. And have both, yeah. I mean, there's no need to deny physical evolution in order to have God. But there's, I mean, so many people feel that you can just have physical evolution and you don't need God because we just randomly develop from the monkeys and they think it's obvious and it, uh, they seem to be happy with that thought. Also the thesis that uh, the, stronger, the stronger survives. Survival of the fittest. Exactly. And which leads to a whole other... I mean, there's a whole lot of philosophies that come out of the fact that it's just things colliding and whatever strongest wins and we're just lucky and we're the top of the evolutionary heap and all that. And some of us are deeply disturbed by that thought and decided we would look for an alternative. And other people seem to go cheerfully on with that thought and it doesn't seem to bother them. Yes, Tom? I, uh, I, I came away from reading uh, Crisis in Modern Thought along similar lines that Tanava came along. Swami, if you, if you read the entire book, mm-hmm. he lays a lot of groundwork and he very carefully explains yeah. the various theories and the various right. positions, biological and et cetera, et cetera. But then he, he also very clearly points out that those are just individual separate pieces and in the realities that people have just chosen. There's, it's separateness. And then, he, then at the end, he brings up awareness and how the whole darn thing from the oyster all the way up to master is increasing awareness exactly. along the line, along the way, yeah. from separateness to unity. Right. And obviously, and, and he, obviously uh, people, he, he makes the point that animals and plants and are enjoying themselves to whatever level of awareness they, that right. being is at the moment. But it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So I, I really came away with the whole thing that it's, it's awareness, which you, know, you could say bliss or God or Satchitananda or consciousness, but it's just an increasing level of awareness. Is, that's evolution. Well, that, that's where I was last week, and that, that's what Swami has done with that book is he's, he feels he has truthfully and fairly presented the um, best arguments of alternative theories and shown how the, the definition of life as self-realization is, is, is inherent in what they said. It's just exactly like Tandva said, you face this way and you see this, and you face this way and you see that. There's a point in that book, and I don't know what page it's on, I remember mentioning it to Swami. I feel like he's, he's like a, a panther creeping toward his prey. And he creeps and he creeps and he creeps and he lays this idea and that. I, there's a certain point at the book in which he springs and you can just feel his glee as he basically closes the trap of his own inevitable reasoning. And it's... Yeah. Maybe the last two chapters there's on evolution. Just, it's just a point that's really delightful. And you can just feel his enthusiasm for what he feels he's managed to create. And it's persuasive only to those who have ears to hear. It's not persuasive to those, as Swami, as I mentioned somewhere, when Swamiji talked about giving, trying to teach these teachings to a group of college students who he said asked him extremely intelligent questions. And it was, it was stimulating and fun to answer them. But when it was over, he realized... He'd been slightly demeaned by doing it because it was just an intellectual exercise for them. And, and this is not a teaching 
that should be banding, bandied about as an intellectual exercise. It's a sacred teaching. And it doesn't mean that people can't question, but as he put it, he said the college students, that group, not college students in general, but that group, he said, just went home, licked their wounds, and would, and would have, if he'd given them the chance, come back with a new set of arguments. And so that's just, there's not the receptivity to it. So if you're really a diehard materialist, you can read Swami's book and punch it full of holes. If you're inclined, that's why he calls it out of the labyrinth. Those who are trapped in that labyrinth of, of having been instructed and indoctrinated from the beginning of your education, the way the world works now, but, you, but something in you, you know, screams out that this can't be true, but you don't have any place in that whole world in which to... Um, Refu- uh, repudiate it. And so it's, it's the way out of the labyrinth. That's why he, he called it exactly what he called it. Revela- Revelations of Christ, which you also referred to, is the same book as he put it. You know, for those who, who really feel this call to Jesus but are so, or feel the power of Jesus but are so confused by, you know, the- theologians and historians and now novelists and intellectuals who are just taking you taking the whole story of Jesus apart and if you don't have um, a way to refute that it can be just extremely disturbing and so he's trying to give us both in crises and also in revelations uh, for those who want to believe but can't I'm not sure whether that's in crisis or in revelations but that was that was his phrase you want to believe but you you can't because all these all these intellectual facts are contradicting you and you need to have a real way to meet them. And this is not merely a, a crisis of individuals. This is a crisis of our whole society. Because our whole society is just dismantling itself virtually in front of our eyes. And uh, presenting to children just like a Lego set without any directions or picture on the box. You know, a thousand word puzzle. with all with the, It's all the same color. And you have no idea what you're supposed to be putting back together. Which is why... People are freaking out. And, you know, we're just randomly hoping that they'll sort it out. I I heard some children, or the comments of some children, you know, we have this idea that we have this ecological mess on our hands and we're trying to be responsible by making sure that from a very young age children know what a mess it is. But then children feel the burden to solve it. Six, seven, eight years old? Because they know that we don't know what we're doing and we're just going to... And somehow we think this is helping them, but it's, it's very disturbing to many children. And it causes a lot of the chaos that you see. You know, kind of, what the heck anyway? It's all just going to pieces. And he says, where are the constructions, Anna? Yeah, exactly. Where are the constructions, he calls it? Yeah, exactly. But people don't have them. That's just the problem. They're caught. So these are very serious issues. That's what I was saying last week about Swami's book, Crises, was... He had spent 10 years writing it, and it was the first thing he did when he got out of SRF. And he started it right away, because suddenly he was not in an isolated world anymore. He was going to need to really relate to the world around him, and he also had the opportunity for the first time to really um, expand the boundaries of Master's teachings as wide as Swami's creative attunement could expand them. And so he he's, has always seen Master's teachings as the antidote, the antidote to what ails us as a planet as we transition from Kali to Dwapara. So he wanted to lay a very broad foundation. As I mentioned last week, Kriman gave a class once in which he explained you know, exactly how crises in modern thought, which was the first name of what is now out of the labyrinth, basically how everything Swami's done has been based on that. Just like everything Master did was based on the science of religion. There are basically two forces. This was the thesis of uh, science of religion, which is now God is for everyone. There are two forces in the world to escape suffering and to find bliss. Then everything follows from that. Master constructed the, the whole of Sanatana Dharma from just those two points, because that's all that we're doing. And the same way, awareness, which I find is one of the really wonderful ones, I mean, whenever I'm introducing Master's teachings to an environment, to an, uh, an audience that really has no context, 
in which you can't just, you know, go guru bhakti and have everybody really like that. I mean, if you're in a place where you can, that's just marvelous. Just devotion to the guru, that's wonderful. But when people don't even know what you're talking about, you start the premise of expanding awareness. And you don't need any theology, you don't need any dogma, you don't need any belief system at all, because everybody can think about that, about I used to know less and now I know more. I used to be aware of less and now I'm aware of more. We can all chart our progress like that. It's very easy to chart our progress. I used to think that if I ate at at McDonald's every single day, I would feel good. Now I'm more aware and I realize it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can just start there. If I exercise, I feel better. If I don't lose my temper over every little thing, I feel better. You know, just, I become more aware. And then, where does it stop? And, and you're, you're, that's when Master said in here, in answer to this, religion is just, I mean, theology is just thinking about things, science just thinks about things, but spirituality is really to experience it. So we actually experience that, our, that an expanding awareness gives us more of what we want. And then once you have that, once you really have that, everything else rolls out from that. Because if you keep expanding your awareness you will discover everything else. That's the first line of Autobiography of a Yogi. The, uh, the, the characteristic feature of Indian culture has always been the search for eternal verities. And then he says, and the concomit disciple-guru relationship, which means that if you keep searching for eternal verities, you're going to stumble on the disciple-guru relationship because you will find it. And so it is if you just start trying to expand your awareness, eventually everything else will come to you because you'll just take one step at a time. And eventually you'll end up where the masters are because you can't help it. And so did the monkeys. So will the monkeys. So will everyone. Does that make sense? Tandava, have we satisfied it? No? What do you want? Is there more to say on the subject? My only question was the part that you just gave a shrug. So, Which <laughs> if, was if, what? Which is poof? Is what does the special creation mean? And uh, yeah, and I don't know. But, he, but here's an, yeah. there's other lines here that I didn't notice before. God, comma, when he set the process in motion, gave the tree seeds that it might produce other trees like itself, which certainly implies that he created a tree with the ability to reproduce itself which implies that the tree did not grow originally from the seed, but the tree, tree was created with the seed inherent in it. I can't, you know, this, that's a statement of belief when I say that, because I don't, but that's, that is exactly how he says it. When he set the process in motion, he gave the tree seeds. That's pretty explicit, in, just in terms of Master's actual words. I, I don't know how to picture it more than that, because he just said it. He does that, I mean... You would raise the question that maybe the seed gradually grows into the tree, but Master just says here that he gave the tree with the seed with the ability to reproduce itself. Well, I, I still feel like what I put in the email was my best shot at explaining it, but we don't have to put it all on tape. <laughs> so, my, my problem was that because Swami seemed fine with accepting evolution, you know, as a physical mechanism that we observe, that seems to be at odd with the idea of a special creation as poof, all of a sudden there's something there that wasn't there. And for various other reasons that I mentioned, it also seems like that's difficult to accept. So I was trying to find a way to make both sides of that be true. I I think I am at the end of it, so I think I have to stop. No, I mean, there might be more to say, but not by my brain. So I'm willing to just concede that there are unanswered questions, but I think I'm really close to the school song. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And I respect, and here's Tandava's email for those who would like to read it. And if we get requests over the internet, we can mail them Tandava's email. But I can't answer the questions, because the question is still that one, just like, exactly how does it work, and I don't have the foggiest idea. I do find it interesting. I, you know, this is like Master's words are so interesting. You know, when he set the process in motion. I didn't even notice that the last time I read it. That's why it's so much fun to keep reading these. Okay. 
moving right along. Shall we evolve from this point? Have we learned? Have our, has our experience of evolution been sufficient for us to move on at this point? Okay. So, I, I read number seven last week, which was about polishing, polishing, polishing. So now we're at number eight. Um, if you go to a doctor and get a prescription from him, but after you return home, you tear it up and toss it away, how will you expect to get well? The guru is your spiritual doctor. It isn't sufficient merely to have a guru. You must also do what he tells you. Oh dear. If you follow his prescription even a little bit, your life will be transformed. Everyone who practices what he learns here, speaking of Mount Washington where he was speaking, I believe, or in the ashram, everyone who practices what he learns here will pass through the portals of death into the radiant kingdom of light. Don't expect to get there, however, if you merely depend passively on the guru, like a superstition, superstitious paint, like a superstitious patient, whom one may imagine framing his prescription and hanging it on a wall, as if expecting the writing itself to make him well. And don't think to get there by merely hanging on grimly to the end. Go on with steadfast faith, devotion and joy. Long before you reach your divine goal, you will have realized how very sweet life can be when it is lived rightly. You will be glowing with inner radiance, vitality, and happiness. Those are lovely promises, aren't they? Yeah, it's a great paragraph. You know, this is one of the many um, um, aspects of this path, and People have been talking a lot about it to me lately for some reason of um, the practice, just practicing the teachings and the actual beneficial effect. As Swami says, it's not on this path. It's, I was thinking of the life of St. Teresa of Avila, who, um, whatever her years were, it was a, a time that was less enlightened as a society. And the instruction she raised, uh, received from the Catholic Church to which she was devoted was that you know you live in this world however you live, and then when you die, you go to heaven, and you get to be with Jesus, and there's this eternal life after this one, is how it's presented. It Reincarnation was not part of the picture. You just try to follow the rules here, and then you get to go to heaven. And one of the quickest ways to be assured of eternal salvation was to be martyred for the church, or for your faith. So when she was about eight years old, I believe she persuaded her little brother or her older brother, and the two of them just set out from home looking for the Moors, as it were, because then they could be martyred for their faith in Jesus, and it would just all be settled really quickly. And it, it just it was a very reasonable thing for a child to think. It's like martyrdom is will give me eternal life with God, so let me just go find a way to be martyred. Uh, and, of course, her parents, her father, found out that she was out there wandering, and they brought both of them home, but it was an extremely reasonable deduction in her mind. And a great deal of uh, spiritual life in Kali Yuga, because they, they're, they're, they didn't have... The masters knew. I mean, Jesus taught Kriya, and he taught Sanatana Dharma, and he taught reincarnation, and he, he taught exactly what master taught to those who, who were... for whom it was appropriate. But when he stood in front of um, a crowd... He, he had to offer that crowd what that crowd was able to understand. I mean, those of us who have seen Swamiji in so many different environments, and if you read Master's, um, the transcription of his talks or hear some of his talks, very, very different just depending on who he's talking to. Swami tells us in one of our Sunday readings that um, when Master was talking primarily to disciples, he emphasized above all things the idea of attunement. But when he was talking to other audiences, he didn't speak of it so much because it wasn't what they were able or ready to hear. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't just a question of what he could have said. It's what every um, audience needs to hear from them. So what every, what every audience draws out of them is more accurate. And I also have noticed with Swamiji that the presence of one or two people 
with a very different consciousness, could mold everything he would say. And sometimes he would, on rare occasions, you know, he would try to narrow the number of people in the room so that he could speak more freely, so that you didn't have those kinds of uh, resisting energies in the room, but then he was able to go out. And every once in a while, he would essentially speak more freely and then afterwards refer to so-and-so or those people over there. And I just decided I had to speak to the room and he just hoped that it was okay because he was very conscious of that. But so the whole time of Kali Yuga, which is a lot of what, you know, we're still um, infected with it. Even though we're shifting into Dwapara, we, we're just, it still infects our attitude towards spirituality. And so Master had, especially when Master first arrived, he had to really make a strong point that, yes, there is this, and he even says it, if you practice what I tell you, at death you will enter into this radiant, you know, this radiant world of light. But then he backs up from that and say, but don't think that this is just a reward that comes to you at the end of life. This is actually the most practical way to live even now. And if you give it a fair shot, in other words, what he's also saying is this is verifiable by your own experience right now. And what Master is doing, both with his words, with his presence, with his enduring consciousness, is, is he's, he's giving us uh, enough of a taste of that that we, we will be interested in trying. Um, on Saturday, I gave a class about discipleship, and I was, I was talking, as I often would in such a moment, about the effect that Swami Kriyananda had on me. And we were talking about, you know, did, when did you recognize that you were belonged to Master and the whole thing about Guru. And I realized with Swami, I, I wasn't interested in Master particularly. I'm not sure that I clearly understood that he was a disciple of Yogananda when I met him. I don't really remember that as part of the idea. It was, my friend said, he's a real teacher. And that was basically, was enough for me. I knew what that meant. But I just saw in him what I wanted to become. It was, it was extremely pragmatic. It was transcendental, but it was also very pragmatic. I was casting about trying to figure out how to fulfill in my own life my intuitive sense of the possibilities of my life, that it could actually be meaningful, that it could be joyful, that it didn't just have to be uh, a, a, a worthless grind to nothing. But nobody around me was living outside the box, as far as I could see. Everybody was just following the well-worn path um, that didn't, to my eyes, lead to any place I wanted to go. And it was a very serious dilemma. But when I saw Swami, I saw someone that I wanted to be. And that's what the masters do for us. They just show us what we might be. And if you have ears to hear and the heart to feel it and the eyes to see it, it's a very powerful incentive. And they're not dead yet. They're right in front of you. So they're, they're telling you that this is a living reality. And so then you have to start listening uh, because it's not enough. And, and you, you find this in India, a little, it, an attitude that's kind of developed in India, which is really superstitious. Um, I've mentioned many times, especially toward the end of Swami's life, um, they had to make a cordon of, of devotees holding hands like this so that Swami could get in and out of an auditorium because people held a superstitious belief, but it was also based a little on fact that if they could just touch him or, or put their children you know, in contact with him, that everything would shift. And it's not untrue, but it's an insufficient truth, just like uh, in the... Uh, Bible story where the crowds were pressing in upon Jesus and he suddenly in all of that said someone has touched me and he, he starts demanding of his disciples who touched me and the disciples just think he's loony he said everybody was touching you sir you were just you know pressed in by the crowd he said no he said I felt power go out of me and then the woman who had touched the hem of his garment not even his physical body it, confessed because he was demanding that whoever it was come forward and confessed that she had been instantaneously healed 
of, of a hemorrhage that had been going on for, what was it, 12 years? Is that what she said? Just by touching the hem of his garment. So there was, there was truth there, but she also was, power had gone out of him because she was, many others had touched him, but no power went out of him. So this is the difference between just being superstitious and depending passively on the guru and just saying, I have a guru, therefore everything is set. Like um, the, the women who drove recklessly and when they were criticized for doing so, they said, well, master will protect us. And master responded, just let them try to drive off a cliff and see if I save them. Why should I? You know, why should I just let them be foolish and protect them from their own foolishness? I mean, it's a very real question. Why should he help us if we put out no energy to help ourselves? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like that. Um, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. I also, um, you know, there's the statement that Master has made, those who are loyal to the end, I, at the time of death, I or one of the Masters will be there to take them to the other side. Um, But Master modifies that by saying, and don't think to get there merely by hanging on grimly to the end. I always think about this in terms, when people first hear about the Yugas, they just, uh, the, the progression of the yugas on the planet, they just have this idea that they'll just settle down on planet Earth and just wait till the yugas get more advanced. Um, I mean, that's just a natural thought when, until you reason it out or understand it a little differently, not realizing, as Master says elsewhere in this book, when Swamiji asked him, do we always reincarnate on the same planet? Are, are we really earthlings? And, and Master said, oh no. He said, there are countless planets on which you can incarnate. And he went so far as to say, if you always incarnated on the same one, you would find out too fast. He said, the universe is teeming with life. So the idea that we're the only intelligent beings on the planet, according to Master, is just folly. And therefore, if this planet becomes too advanced for your consciousness, you'll just incarnate on a planet that matches your consciousness. You'll just be weeded out you won't be able to be here at Satya Yuga. But that, that holds the same thought. And so you see, that, again, this is superstitious, where I'm a disciple and I just have to, now that I'm on the, on the rolls, then this is what's going to be there. Um, in one of the latest editions of the autobiography that's published by Self-Realization Fellowship in, in many of the end notes, they, and, and this is just really bad wordsmithing, but it's also bad theology in my point of view, it says something about the blessings of the masters will be there for members of Self-Realization Fellowship. It might even say in good standing, I'm not sure. And, you know, I had a heyday with that one when it was my job to dismantle that sort of thing. Well, does that mean that before you're conscious of being a member, you know, like if you were a disciple from past lives but you hadn't come to Self-Realization Fellowship, and what if you stop paying your dues how many months can you miss, you know, before the blessings of the masters are withdrawn? I mean, but what happens is once you make a statement like that, where you tie something that is eternal and without form, there's some very limited form, the darn thing is you have to keep answering those questions. And that's, voila, the Catholic Church, who has answered every one of those questions, exactly what kind of sins and how many you can commit, and what the quality of each sin is, and how much margin you have, and at what point you become beyond the pale, and then what you might do to get yourself back. I mean, it becomes, well, from my perspective, ludicrous, although sometimes I fear that I was part of making all that up, which might be why I feel the way that I feel. (laughs) I mean, who else would have done it except us, you know, out of goodwill, but you just start in... And you end up someplace you don't really want to end up. But you see how superstitious that is. Because what does that have to do with consciousness? What does that have to do with who I am? And if somebody's living, uh, you know, totally in tune with the teachings, but has never heard of them, but they're not a member in good standing. See how ridiculous it becomes? But you also, we also, I mean, I use that as an example because... I get a malicious, certain malicious glee out of doing that. I have to admit it freely. But it's also institutions versus the individual. It's a very good illustration. But we have to be very careful of that ourselves. Especially, this is, you know, what the, the long middle ground 
between the first flush of enthusiasm and you, it, what, what breaks my heart more than anything is when people lose their initial enthusiasm and then act as if, oh yeah, that's what happens. It, it Fortunately, thank you, Lord, in our particular community, we've managed to just keep having fun. And so a lot of the most active people who are, are, you know, who are most regularly attending are a lot of times the people who have been at it the longest. And it's not like we have this sort of middle-aged, middle-aged meaning middle age of your spiritual life, people who are just waiting and who say things like, oh yeah, when I first came, I was, you know, I was really enthusiastic too, but you'll get over it. <laughs> but you have to really watch that in yourself, that, that you just don't begin to take it for granted and just imagine just because I have, I have a disciple that somehow my salvation is automatic. Your salvation is your salvation, meaning how are you living? You have to live with steadfast faith, devotion, and joy. And long before you reach your divine goal, you will have realized how very sweet life can be when you have lived it rightly. You'll be glowing with inner radiance, vitality, and happiness. Now here's the opposite. If you're not finding out how sweet life can be when it's lived rightly, then somehow or another we're, we're we're not holding this in the proper relationship. And that doesn't mean your life is not without challenges. Because there's a huge difference between your life being intensely challenging and you having a lot of karma to work out and still you can have this inner happiness. And sometimes the inner happiness is really below the surface, but it's below the surface because it's the sure knowledge that you're, you're walking this path with God. I remember this. Indian woman came to see Swami. We were in India, so most of the people who were there were Indian. But she came to visit him, and um, you know, people are amazing. Uh, I, I count myself among the amazing ones in this respect, which is uh, our ignorance. Our ignorance tortures us, and yet we defend it. And uh, you know, and she was a, a marvelous example of someone who she came to Swami for his wisdom, but her attitude toward him was superstitious. She wanted him to lift her suffering. And he wanted to tell her how to get through it. But she wanted to just sit in front of him and have it go away. You see the difference? You want to be well, you want to be healed, but you don't want to do anything to get well. So she was presenting a fairly difficult life situation having to do with something to do with family. The details of it escaped me. But it was, it was genuinely challenging. There was, nothing, um, there was nothing exaggerated in her sense of how difficult the karma was that she was facing. And Swami tried to help her by talking about, well, once you're on the path, because I believe this woman was even a Kriyaban, if I'm not wrong, but she was certainly serious about the path. And so Swami kept referring to you know the 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 guru's guidance, the uh, necessary working out of karma, the inevitability that we'll have things to face. You know, he just kept trying to give her a context, and she kept arguing, protesting about how awful it was, and and wanted another answer from him. You know, just like the um, the the car- cartoons where you see the Devotee climbing up the steep mountain, getting to the top to where the little sadhu is sitting and then ask what the meaning of life is. And I can't even remember how this one starts, but whatever answer he got, he didn't like the devotee. And he says to the lone sadhu, is there anybody else here I can talk to? (laughs) And that was sort of, this woman has come all the way to see Swami, but she kept asking for an answer other than the one he was giving her instead of hearing what he was saying and integrating that. And Swami kept saying to her, you know, when you understand the spiritual path, at least there is meaning and direction to the challenges you face. But that was like so not what she wanted to hear. She wanted to hear how they were all going to go away because he was going to do something because he was a great saint. 
and she was going to come to him and she was going to pray and it was all going to go away. You're just going to make it right, aren't you? And the, the annoying thing is that they can. I mean, they're capable of taking the karma from us, but part of the reality of that is that one who has true wisdom won't take it unless it's really to our benefit to do so. I mean, what would it have helped that woman to have just taken away what she was dealing with? It would have just, it would have weakened her, not strengthened her. It would have diminished her awareness, not raised it. I mean, that, I remember the story of the woman who became known as Peace Pilgrim, who was a very advanced soul, who was an American saint, who just walked out of her house one day and for the next 25 years just walked around this country and became very well known. There's a book somewhere called Peace Pilgrim. It's very interesting to read. She developed healing abilities and she developed the capacity to remove people's symptoms. She had that much um, energy coming through her that she could make a sick person well. And she talked about some woman who had a debilitating disease like MS or something like that and was gradually becoming crippled. And because this woman could, she took those symptoms away and the woman became well. Um, When she became well, her husband uh, initiated a divorce process against her because he'd just been sticking it out because she was sick, apparently. So now that she was well, he didn't have to stay with her anymore. Of course, she immediately began to get sick again. And that was when Peace Pilgrim realized that it wasn't a matter of what you can do, it's a matter of what is, what is right. And so she started thinking about healing people rather than just taking away their symptoms. And you know, just pulled way back and was completely different. The masters are just, they're not interested in taking away our symptoms. They want to make us radiant, vital, uh, full of inner radiance, vitality, and happiness. And this, as Master says elsewhere in this book, God can break his own laws, but he won't. And so whatever we're experiencing, and this is the result of our karma, but what, where the grace comes is that you just have the ability to face it. And that doesn't mean you don't suffer. It just means still you have the ability to face it. And it's very subtle, but when you begin to find it, it's worth much more than just having your symptoms taken away because if you have one set of symptoms taken away, you're still afraid. It's the absence of fear. That's what real healing is. And that's, that's what we're all working for. I was, I was just thinking about that recently because... Uh, Torture, physical torture is something naturally that people are afraid of. And I always remember Swami, that story about Swami, the dream he told us where he was going to be burned at the stake. And just how casual he was about it. Oh well, I'm just about to be burned at the stake. And when he was saved in the dream from being burned, he he didn't have an enormous sense of elation. It just was, okay, I was going to be burned and now I'm not. I mean, just, just even for a minute... Just imagine what fearlessness would really be like. It's definitely worth considering. And, and that's, that's the power of divine tests. Is, as, as Master says elsewhere, divine tests are given to us not to, not to break us, but to awaken us to the infinite power that's within us. Because we, we just find out that we can do things we didn't know we could do. And then that's yours forever. I mean, I remember, you know, Swamiji could just face so many things. So, so um, effortlessly wouldn't be the right word because he put out a lot of energy, but fearlessly. It just was here, it had to be faced, we'll just do it. And there was nothing in him that wished it to be otherwise. That, think how powerful that is. We're always wishing it to be otherwise. So... Don't be superstitious. Participate. That's what he really says. And then Master says, number nine is very short. The Master used to tell us, if you practice even a hundredth part of, I used to say it a tenth, but it's actually a hundredth part, I was misquoting him, I mean, of what I teach you, you will reach God. That's quite a promise, isn't it? But, Master says elsewhere, everybody practice a different hundredth part. That's why I have to teach so much. <laughs> but it's... Well, but that's also... It's part of... Um, 
that particular statement has, has this implication to it, um, which is the art versus science. You know, everybody's so different. I, I, just, um, I just find it so interesting how different we are. Just everybody responds to things in such a different manner. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes I say something to someone and um, the other day, many years ago, I, I was having a difficult interaction with someone and um, Swamiji wanted me to call that person and make a certain suggestion. And I, Swami, I was with Swamiji in another city and he'd been having this discussion and then he said, call so-and-so and suggest this. I wasn't getting along so well with the person I was calling, but I called up and I, I didn't say, Swami says you should do this. I sort of tried to, you know, that's, a, that's an unkind thing to do to people. So I tried to be a little more, um, have the truth of it be self-evident and I was immediately rebuffed, just totally rebuffed. This was many years ago, I will say. I was totally rebuffed. Afterwards, I, I said to Swami, I said, it's so annoying. You know, they just never listen to me. And then I said something else. And then Swami said, well, essentially, do you listen to them? Do you think ill thoughts toward them? And I just had to say, all the time. Because <laughs> it was just true. And, and then he, he just laughed and I laughed. Well, what did you expect? You project, you know, not respectful thoughts. And then when it's your turn, you get not respectful thoughts back. I mean, like, how, what's the popular phrase? Duh. Right? People feel your thoughts and you get, you get what you put out. So for me, someone was talking to me about a situation in which they responded in a certain way and then they got criticized for the way they responded and there was this whole long saga about that. And I said, well, were you projecting a lot of negative thoughts toward them? And the person admitted that they were and I just sort of laughed it off. Realized later it really hurt that person's feelings. I said, oh dear, that's a joke. In my little world, that's a joke. You know, people are against you. Well, have you been projecting negative toward them? That's a joke to me. It's not like a big criticism. It's like, what did you expect? But of course, everybody's different. I mean, it's such a simple thing and it's so obvious. But in the world I live in, that was a humorous remark. (laughs) In the world that person lived in, it was a very hurtful remark. I mean, that's my fault. But just a little, a little thing like that. See how different we are? And, and just some people have karmas that just make them incredibly vulnerable and others don't have those karmas. It's just the way we are. So what that's about is, given that, given that we have to do one one-hundredth part, but he teaches enough for everybody to choose a different one-hundredth part, you have to believe in yourself on the spiritual path. I mean, just one more of the millions of reasons why you can't look and think he's more advanced than me and she's less advanced than me. Because you don't have any idea. You don't have any idea which hundredth part applies to them. Someone who told me that they've never missed a meditation in all their years, morning or night, their sadhana is absolutely solid, but the person was honest enough to confess, he said, it doesn't mean anything that I've been able to do that. He said, it's something that I just know how to do. And, you know, for another person, they could be struggling to do that, but it, he knew when he was telling me this that this didn't make him more advanced. It was like having a good singing voice or something. It was just there. Routine was something he could follow without any trouble. And, of course, it was the envy of many of his friends, but he knew for him it wasn't the cutting edge of his growth. It wasn't the hundredth part that was really going to make the difference in his life. It had to be something else. So we hear all these different ways of being on the path. This is why you need community. We need the examples of living masters. And you have to use those resources. I mean, again, you can't just be superstitious. You have to actually open yourself. Because the answers are always... I remember someone was talking to me once about uh, some issue... I don't, I don't... Oh, I do remember, but I'm not going to say it. It doesn't matter. Just some issue they were dealing with. And... I was, and they were, they were really on a, berating themselves, and they kept trying to interject, and the person said to me, I know what you're going to say, I know what you're going to say. I said, no, actually, you don't have 
any idea what I'm going to say. And in fact, what I answered was completely outside of what they'd expected. You know, we just, we don't know. But if we don't talk to each other, and really talk to each other, and not open the sentence with, I know this is silly. No, it isn't silly. Nothing, not one, not one tiny shred of us is the slightest bit silly, or stupid, or wrong, or just my ego, which is one of the things I dislike the most. Of course it's your ego. It's always our ego. That's what we are until we're liberated. To say it's just my ego is, it's, it's, it's an extra useless phrase. You know, just don't waste the breath on it. Everything is your ego. So the question is, what is your ego doing? How are we going to work with it? And, and to have the, well, the lack of ego. To, to, to neither exaggerate nor denigrate. But just, here I am. I mean, we're all just, Swami once described this world as a, a hospital. <laughs> just a hospital, the a- ambulatory wounded, that's us. We're walking around, but it's all just a hospital. It's a hospital for people who are really sick with delusion. And everybody here has got it. I used to joke that Ananda Village many years ago, back in the 70s, when it was just such a circus to live there, that it was an extremely sophisticated experiment in dealing with lunatics and that there was actually like this big electrified fence right at the edge and we had just all been thrown in there to see what would happen if we had the illusion of autonomy. I mean, I know they've made a movie about that. And, but it was just, it was a joke, but not really. Because all of us, we're just, everybody's just uh, trying to sort it out. But you should feel very, very at ease about that. When your hundredth part is the hundredth part that you, one, are able to do, and secondly, feel inspired to do. And you just, it's not going to match anybody else's, I dare say. But if it's yours, that's really the part that makes all the difference. I remember when Swami first gave a Kriya uh, weekend, which was probably in the early 80s, was the first time. He gave the higher Kriyas. So he gave a whole weekend devoted to Kriya. He didn't really do that in those early years, 83. And we were actually sitting around with Swamiji and people were asking many questions about Kriya. We'd rarely had that opportunity. I just remember so many people, myself included, wow, I wished I'd asked somebody that question a long time ago. You know, just something that wasn't working, but I thought it was my fault. And that's everybody's comment. I thought it was my fault. And suddenly you find out that, oh, this is just something that happens. Completely different. So, I think that might be the end of the story. Does anybody have any questions or comments before we call it a night? Okay, we just finished number nine. So we went from... uh, We did eight and nine. So we did a giant two. Okay. So next week we'll start with ten, which will probably take us the whole time. Okay. We had a big prologue. We had a a review of six. Right. Besides which it doesn't matter. Okay. Good night. I mean, thank you. Thank you and good night. Okay.